Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxel Podcast. My name is Evan Troxel. Can't believe we're already at episode 20. That's right, 20 weeks, 20 episodes. I'm really happy with where this is going. And I would love to get your feedback on that. So if uh, you have a chance, go ahead and head over to troxel.co, that's T-R-X-L dot C-O slash podcast, and leave me a message. Comment on one of the shows, maybe this one. And you could also hit me up on Twitter, at E-Troxel, E-T-R-O-X-E-L. In this episode, I have a conversation with Shane Scranton. And Shane, like many other guests on this podcast, has a background in architecture, but has gone on to do other things. And also, like many other guests on this podcast, he went into technology. So who is Shane Scranton? Shane is the CEO and co-founder of Iris VR. And Iris VR, I've been a user of it for many years now. And uh, as you'll hear in this episode, Shane and I we cross paths often at conferences where Iris always seems to have a booth showing off the latest and greatest developments of pretty much their flagship product, which is Prospect. Try to say that three times fast. I bet you can't. Uh, anyway, Prospect is an amazing tool. I love using it. And uh, like I said, we've been following along with what Shane and crew have been doing for years now, and their tool is amazing. So, we don't get too deep into that tool specifically, but in this episode, we talk all around the ideas of VR and what it enables designers and clients to do with the projects that we all interact on in architecture. So I'm going to cut off the intro right there because I really want you to hear it straight from Shane himself. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Shane Scranton. Shane Scranton, welcome to the show. It's great to have you and talk to you once again. Yeah, thank you for having me, Evan. I'm looking forward to it. And we have this like window into each other's homes, which is fantastic. It is. I like being able to see you when I talk to you because I think the conversation probably goes a little bit better when we can when we can see each other and and get that kind of you know body language thing going on. Um, but man, it's it's always great to talk to you. You're such a positive guy, and I think like we typically get to see each other at trade shows, conferences, things like that. But we've also met in the office, and I mean, you guys provide um, what I kind of think of as a, let's call it a future fundamental tool, um, because I don't think that the adoption's where it should be yet. But man, like you guys, you guys are like my go-to company when it comes to making a I don't know what what's the right word an endorsement a recommendation about VR and I mean that's not what this show is about but I wanted you to know that because because yeah you guys you guys provide an amazing service so I maybe you could just give a little bit of of background on like how did you get to where you are now in architecture in VR um, talk a little bit about what Iris VR is you know like let, let's just jump right into it yeah a- absolutely and um yeah, it's, it's ever more sort of a full circle in terms of the journey because I'm actually sitting about 10 miles from where I originally tried the first Oculus Rift and actually just, you know, had distanced uh, dinner with an architect I was working with at the time. And like, wow. it really feels now, 
<laughs> there's been a journey. There's been sort of a full journey with different steps to it. And uh, the the first part of the journey was getting into uh, architecture um, very early in college. And then I was super lucky, as, as uh, most company stories are. There's a lot of luck involved in the early days. And I was super lucky to be able to work under uh, a few architects uh, in New England while I was still in school. I took some time off and got to work with them. They all were uh, very giving and like gave me some clients and gave me some projects. And I was looking up how to use Vectorworks while I was still trying to make drawings and sort of just was thrown right into it. And then very quickly found that I loved the Viz side. So I went from sort of general practice uh, as an intern into really, really getting into starting with SketchUp, sort of figuring out how to how to cook my MacBook Pro with V-Ray, yeah. and then um, just diving headfirst into that. And so right after that, I, 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 I really started doubling down on offering Viz, but also like BIM services to folks, mainly in New England. Um, and when I graduated, that became my full-time job. Uh, that, that all was happening. I was working with a handful of construction teams, a handful of architects, um, really having a blast doing like, Little, a couple of websites, yeah. <laughs> a couple of BIM implementation plans, a couple, uh, couple uh, renderings. And then um, at the time, I was also working, my, my co-founder now is Nate. Uh, he was also helping me with some of those projects, and uh, he was in school at the time. And um, VR, the first version, the Oculus Rift 1, uh, the DK1, mm-hmm. uh, came out in, in Kickstarter uh, in 2013. Right. And... I got my hands on it and just immediately sort of saw this connection between all this work I was doing and in working in 3D for the built environment. And suddenly here's a device that uh, is like, it's a direct representation of the built world. There's like, when you're working, yeah, when you're working on a, on a structure on screen, you're inherently picturing in your mind's eye, you know, how tall is this ceiling or, you know, do these windows fill the space in a, in a, in a nice way. And, and suddenly with VR, it was just, it was, it was literal. There was no more metaphor. So, uh, quickly fell in love with that technology, even though at the time, if you remember, I think you had tried it way early on, uh, made you sick (laughs) was a, was a pretty, uh, janky piece of plastic. Uh, the device was not, um, that impressive as, you know, a piece of hardware, but it, it, it showed this, true concept of, of one-to-one scale. So, yeah. uh, so uh, just to, just to actually answer with what we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So once we had the headset, um, and we really sold on how one-to-one, uh, could affect this industry, we saw that there was an opportunity to really connect through software, BIM and VR in a way that really could unlock a lot of workflows for the industry. So we build software, Iris VR is a software company and we build tools that, uh, directly tie into Navisworks, Revit, SketchUp, Rhino, handful of other tools, and in one click sends it into a virtual environment so that you and your team can meet in VR and then explore the space true to scale and make faster decisions and catch more errors. Yeah, I think that there's some magic there in that that you had those two magic words, one click. That to me is where, you know, you've kind of disintermediated the I have to go through all this crazy red tape, somebody who's an expert in x y and z to get me into this thing you've just made it so accessible to people and that's really where the magic is because now there's no barrier to get into it and even more so nowadays where headsets can just be at your desk and you don't have to have a special station set up so we've seen a lot of change even in the time that 
Iris VR has been around uh, it, it, to make things easier and easier and easier to get into it. Yeah, and I think the you know as is usually the case with any company that forms, like the the vision is is ahead of what's practical yeah. at that time and what's doable at that time. And like we 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 always saw like easy to use, one click, out of the box. And I'd say you know uh, our software got there before the hardware got there. Where right. we had we had a tool that worked in one click. You would go from Revit into VR, but uh, VR was say like the Vive, and you needed tripods, and you needed a fast computer, and you like. It was one click once you had the vibe set up and suddenly there was this barrier to entry where, you know, there's just a lot involved in, in, in getting that set up as a new user who wasn't familiar with, with how, to, how to set up headsets. And even people who were exposed to it and knew exactly what it was capable of, I mean, you still kind of have to get over that laziness factor of going through all that setup because it is, it's just something, it's inconvenient, right? So now it's just, it's gotten a lot more convenient. Completely. And like, I think there's, you know, there's, there's some key moments in, in this space. And one was Carmack, uh, John Carmack, who's mm-hmm. uh, over at Facebook now, um, uh, really pushing to get a smartphone running VR. So he, he sort of did a lot of work under the hood with Samsung and got Gear VR out the door. Right. And uh, that's, you know, that that harkens back to an earlier time as well, but that really started this move towards headsets not being connected to a computer. And so originally it was the smartphone casing, and now we're past that to these full standalone devices. The, probably the leading one is the Oculus Quest. They just announced the Oculus Quest 2, which is just a nice general uh, generational upgrade. Um, but that's you know that's a fundamentally different device than where we were even a couple of years ago with with these these desktop grade grade headsets. So when you how, you know these new announcements are going to come out, and you're excited. Like, tell me what what is it like for your company when a new generation of headsets comes out? Like, is it is it like Christmas? Is there excitement? Is there dread? Like, what what are you guys feeling? Because obviously, you're going to make adjustments based on whatever hardware is announced. Because hardware and software kind of have this back and forth tug of war or complementary feature set. You know, depending on how you look at it. So, what, what's it like? Um. There's a lot, so short answer is there's a lot of excitement. I think there have been there have been some announcements in the past where we're like, wow, this is going to dramatically change the roadmap for the following yeah, yeah. year, and that's that's both very exciting sometimes, but also uh, occasionally can be quite frustrating. And such as such as uh, frontier technology, it changes so quickly, um, and you know, so much of our of our of our job over, over the years has been really trying to predict where the industry's heading. And I think for the most part, in retrospect, we've been pretty good about sort of following the trends and making the right the right bets. I can give a concrete example, a few of them. Like in the really early days when you plugged in the headset, what was mirrored to the screen was just two eyes. If you remember way back, yeah, like right. you you never saw a full screen version of the of the of what the person was looking at. And Couldn't watch like it. we had a Right. And we had all these requests from customers saying, hey, can you like please make a full screen view of this? And it was like, yeah, like we could do that. Uh, we, we're going to make the safest bet, which is Oculus and all these other guys are going to support a full screen mode on on screen while the headset's looking through two eyes. And like, of course, lo and behold, it took a couple more generations, but that feature came out. So it was something that we didn't have to build and sort of the ecosystem just developed into um, and there's just, I mean, almost every, I have an example for that for almost every generation of hardware where we sort of have to make bets on where it's heading. And I think the, the big one we've made recently, and it's, it's an obvious one if you're following it closely, is really the whole industry is moving to standalone hardware and standalone headsets. So, 
you know, Facebook actually announced that they're they're no longer going to produce the Oculus Rift or the Rift S. So it really is the end of that product line, mm. and they're moving full force into these standalone headsets that don't require a computer. The Oculus Quest product line, um, and they have a really nice. There's there's a more advanced workflow even within that where you still can connect to your computer through a link cable, which is super cool. Um, but you know, they are really investing more in this in this one technology, and it's it's affected our roadmap quite significantly over the last two years as we move towards that that reality yeah i think one of the things that we saw uh going into the the work from home time was that headsets were just not even available like we now it's like oh my god we have this perfect use case to actually meet in the model right because you guys made that possible with multi-user vr experiences um which have been incredible um especially with uh, a firm with multiple offices now we've got 350 offices right? Instead of seven offices. And uh, we do not have 350 headsets. <laughs> so, so that was a huge hurdle. Uh, what, what, is, what did you see from like, your side when, when all this went down? And I'm sure there was a big push all of a sudden to, to use these tools more for collaboration. But like, what, what other things were you guys seeing? Yeah. Um, so you're right. I mean, this is specialized hardware with um, a very uh, restricted supply chain, right? And when COVID hit, it also affected those manufacturing facilities. We we don't know that for sure, but we're assuming since stock did not return. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we sort of saw the reality of like, there's this perfect application now for, because everyone's distributed. Like you said, there's everyone's in their own office. Yeah. Um, no one brought, the vast majority of, of people working from home did not bring home their big desktop tower and right. their Vive and the, like that's still sitting in conference rooms in their offices. And uh, we were we were refreshing the inventory yeah. <laughs> on Amazon and on Oculus's website uh, with some frequency because it really sure. was uh, connected to the demand there. All of that to say though, like we, there, the way it's really been set, sequenced out is there were still ways for any potential customer to find a headset, usually through third parties. Um, or through Oculus for Business sort of had their own channels. Um, so we could still do some pilots. And then for the rest of the collaborators, they were able to join just from their computer. So even if they didn't have a headset, they could still join those meetings from their computer as they as they waited for inventory to get filled. But I mean, to be completely candid, it was, it was a rough like February through March from a headset standpoint, yeah. just because there was not a lot of inventory and the demand was there. And uh, it was just... Uh, really trying to get creative with how to get people the gear so they could try it. And, you know, fortunately now we got the next generation of headsets coming out and already it looks like stock will be uh, much more available. And mm. that's of course really important for the industry's use of it and for our growth. Yeah. So I, I can only imagine like people really wanting to all of a sudden use this technology and then they're kind of on standby mode. And it's like, you want to get in while the momentum is there I, and before it kind of runs out. So absolutely. But I think the the full screen demo, even if you're not wearing a headset, it's 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 compelling enough to keep people engaged. And I say compelling enough because it, it's it's you're essentially still in a game environment. Right. So you're able to go in from a computer with with not as much processing power as would be needed for VR and see each other's avatars have a conversation in the space. And of course, the fundamental thing you're missing there is the one-to-one -one scale. Yeah. Um, so it, it is it is very much an appetizer. And if at least one person in that meeting is in VR, everyone else who's participating can see 
it's essentially how much more of a meaningful experience they're having yeah. and sort of keep that excitement up. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's inventory is the, the real challenge and especially with frontier technology, like this is, this is all new. It all requires sort of new supply chain. And, um, and as a result, we, we, the rollout over 2020 was likely slower due to the restrictions yeah. just based on what was available. But I, I'm, I'm, and this is not sort of a PR approach. I am genuinely uh, very excited for where this Q4 is heading and where 2021 is heading because it really looks like production's ramped up. At least from our 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 seat, it looks like there's going to be a lot more availability, and the headsets are really reasonably priced. So we think uh, we think it's going to just sort of be everywhere by Q1, Q2 next year. So so take me back and when when did you found Iris? So we officially incorporated in uh, 2014. Okay. And so we're actually, we're approaching, um, yeah, we, we had the idea almost exactly seven years ago and okay. about six and a half years in. Wow. So in that time, um, you guys have seen a lot of incremental change, right? We, we're seeing things go more and more mobile and less and less attached and more fidelity in the models. And, you know, you guys have gone through a lot with the rendering engine with, removing features and then adding them back in in better ways because that's how software development works right so if you go back to that original kind of time period and what your vision was how close is it now to what you kind of originally thought it was gonna be like because that to me like as a founder like as the person with the vision or a co-founder in your case right like you guys had some inclination obviously you didn't have like the perfect crystal ball that that showed you but so so just Kind of how did it actually play out versus what you might have thought it was going to do? Yeah, so uh, I'm smiling because it's there's there are many pieces of it that are so close, um, and I think and I think it's not it's not because of any <laughs> uh, great genius on our side. It's just there was a lot of inevitability in where this was heading, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm actually let's see if I can bring it up live. I might have to do it as we're uh, as we're talking later. Um, but uh, I actually shared this with the team recently, and um, so I found it. It was our 2014 business plan, and it was it was first making it intuitive, then making it interactive, and then making it intelligent. And we put that over three years. That is essentially now our 20 year plan. <laughs> we were we were thinking about making it much. Uh, we originally thought that our initial release was going to be, we had started this in the spring. We thought it was going to be over the summer, we'd get our first release out. And of course, lo and behold, you know, four years later, we were getting the the first release out. But uh, besides our complete inability, right when we started to understand the true scope of a project like this, uh, and ultimately it turning into a company, um, the the, sort of the the pillars to what we were working on um, were were easy to use. So make it one click and make it uh, super simple. Uh, make it networked so that uh, people can collaborate together. There can be file sharing and that groups can make decisions together. Um, make it aesthetically pleasing so that there's a signature look and feel where it's really easy to engage with um, and and visually pleasing uh, while still performant. And then support really large files um, and support all the edge cases related to those. So we wrote that down at the start of 2014. And boy, I would say that that is, that is about... Uh, exactly where we are today in terms of the wow. core tenants still. So uh, again, I think it's, I think, I think it does though more than, more than reinforce uh, us specifically. It shows 
even when you put on a, a really early device, there's such a clear inevitable, inevitable path towards yeah. what's sort of the ideal use case. And I think VR, especially because it's experiential, the second you experience it, you can start sort of playing out in your mind, okay, like, well, this is, you know, you want to see other people in here. It needs to look good. And I need to be able to load the big stuff in. And I need to be able to share this in a way that's like lossless. And I need my, my files to really feel like they're, they're natively my files and there's not stuff lost in translation. Sort of all of that, um, was very clear back when we started. Um, the hard part, and this is the hard part with I think most startups, is uh, how do you sequence that? And how do you sequence that in a way where you can uh, make some money to keep the business going and in a way that really addresses users' needs so it's valuable right out of the gate before you have all of that built? And I think that is, of course, the, the hardest part of building something completely new is you really need to find the incremental value along the way. Mm. Um, yeah. So when you guys... I mean, you, you demo this to a lot of people, right? Like this is, I'm sure it's insane. I can't even imagine what that's like because every conference that I go to, you are there, right? And you are like on your feet the whole time and you've got this big grin on your face. And and I can only imagine like there's a certain energy that you're pulling from these people experiencing this for the first time. I would love it if just to hear about like a story like like what is it like when because i've experienced this and i think this is the best part of vr is when a skeptic walks in they're like nah i don't need to do that right and then like i don't know eight hours eight days eight months later they finally are convinced enough to try it because maybe they saw somebody else do it and they're like they that gave them permission to do it themselves and and then it was like a holy crap moment for them right i i can imagine you probably experienced that more than anybody else so so, like, if, if you were to kind of compile all that together and, and translate it to maybe people who, or who are listening to this who have never experienced it themselves or never seen somebody else experience it that maybe gave them permission to do it, what's that like? So, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, you, there's the conceptual side of hearing me tell you that it's true to scale, right? And that's, it's like, yeah, like, so is Revit, right? So is when I'm... When I'm in my model, like, yeah, it's, it's already true to scale. Um, and, you know, then we usually say, well, it's like you're standing there. Like, you can look around and sort of, just, you know, you're just, you're able to engage with the model like it's a, like it's a built environment. And I think it's just, I think what's been so fun all these years is, like, conceptually it makes sense. And, and you can even get someone on board conceptually. Uh, but then when they try, try it, universally, especially if they've tried VR before, they're like, Oh, it really is true to scale. Oh, I really do feel like that. It's like, yeah, like we're not lying when we say this. Like, I know it sounds good to, to, for us to say it, but like, it is. Um, it's very fun to have someone like usually. So there's all these tells, right? You can tell if they're a gamer if they don't move their head. So if they put on the headset and they don't move their head and they just walk around with their controls, then you know they're a gamer because yeah. uh, gamers are just used to the fixed head engagement of a model um you can tell they're not a gamer if the first thing they do is just like instead of grabbing the controls they look around right and they start and you can really tell they're not a gamer if the way they move is they start walking in a direction and walking walk into something in the next booth over um and uh i, I think universe very rarely we've given to your point like especially in the early days i was given a couple demos a day probably and on you know good weeks it was it was definitely more than seven seven in person demos in a week. I was traveling around pretty much the first couple of years of the business fully, and uh, very rarely we had someone take off the headset and go like Meh. like right. pretty much universally everyone was like that was completely unbelievable. Like I'm working on X Y Z right now. How can I see that now? Right. And um, 
that was super exciting. It was also frustrating when we were pre-product, right? Yeah. <laughs> like when we were building it and they were like, how do I buy this? How do I buy this? It's like, I want it now. like, I'm so happy that you like it, but like, we're, you know, we're in an early alpha, like it'll load X number of files of this type, like, and they're like, oh, well, we have a different file format. It was very frustrating, yeah, right. but also, also helped validate the space. So long answer to people just get blown away. Um, and I think the other, the other answer that's more important for us now, and I think a really important thing that we look for is now more than ever, the first demo we give to a potential client is one of their own projects, right? And we can usually gauge success based on uh, how little they talk about VR, right? Like it, it is a successful demo if we so we give the preamble, they put on the headset, and then they immediately switch into like, oh, we got to go review this. Like mm-hmm. this, that does not look like what I thought it looked like. Let's go over to this part of the building and have a meeting. And like the most successful demos that right now give just sort of make me feel the best and just drive the the, the most excitement on our team is when you know a demo turns into a design review. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people come out with notes and it's sort of just like it immediately turns into a, a meaty conversation that's not about VR because VR is just the tool. Yeah. It's about the, the work. It's about yeah. the project. Yeah. Um, and that's been exciting to see happen more frequently. Yeah, I, I, I've had a few examples similar to that, and and it, I, I agree with you. It's it's when it becomes like this tool that gives you an ability to make decisions right then. That is a big shift in like what the perception of this thing is. It, as soon as people realize like it's not just a presentation tool, that it's actually a tool to get work done, to document decisions or to to really understand the kind of work that you're doing and and what it meant to draw those lines in whatever tool you're drawing them in and then to see it in reality you know in in air quotes um the the other example that i love is is when people come out of a headset and are disappointed that they're not in that environment anymore because they've obviously authored this masterpiece right and uh and and now we're back to reality and it's not quite as cool Oh, completely. And, you know, I think there's we there's some very funny uh, uh, similarities between pretty much every demo we give work. Universally, there's always someone who asks if they can spawn a weapon to blow up the building. Universally, <laughs> without yeah. fail. Right. There's always someone who dances. There's always someone who gets up onto, like, a ledge and dances. It's yeah. just universal. And there's also usually a tic-tac-toe game. Just there's those, you know, you three... Three pillars, yeah. Three pillars of it just has. There has to be someone doing that stuff. We had a guy go into a, a one of our projects who was like a you know he was a he was actually an interview panelist, and part of our interview strategy was to put people in a project that they couldn't tour in reality yet because it was under construction. But it was a like project to what they wanted, and they had never used VR before. And I mean, you, you've probably heard this story before, but it was it was this guy goes in there and he's an older guy and he's got a great attitude and he's like, sure, I'll try it. I'll jump in there and do it. And and basically, like, that's the person you want to go in first because they are going to make it OK for everybody else to go in there, too. Um, it's like this first follower principle, right? It's like it's it's not necessarily even like you would put the headset on and you would be the leader and be like, it's OK, you can try it. And then the, there's this kind of first person to volunteer to do it that's the first follower that actually unlocks the permission for everybody else and and when he went in he he sticks his head through a wall at some point right and he is blown in vr and he is completely blown away when he did that 
he lit up and he thought that was the best thing ever, right? And then you see people walk off ledges and because there isn't gravity built into the game, right? Or into the, the, the model that you're in, you can like walk off a second floor and hover over a lobby or whatever that might be a, a dual story space or, or whatever. As, there's so many different examples of this where as soon as you are able to kind of break the laws of physics and it feels real, that is extremely delightful for people. And that is so fun to watch as an audience, I think. I think that it, it, makes, it, it makes it really interesting to stop watching the screen and start watching the person. Completely. And I think, so I love that story too, because I think the, like the magical piece is there's a fine line, right? You can overdo it. Like you have to adhere in the virtual world to some laws of reality for it to feel believable. Um, which is why we do not let you spawn a weapon to blow up your building. Um, among other reasons, (laughs) but, um, but like, if you can selectively uh, break the, like, I'll give an example, right? We're working a lot right now on world space UIs, meaning right now a lot of your user interface is attached to your controllers. Um, But just through the nature of shared meetings, increasingly you want sort of everyone to see the same information in world space. You want a control panel that everybody has access to. Yes. Okay. And like, it's interesting, right? You like, if you create a, a, element in front of you that is that is in space your brain works in a way where you just of course you expect everyone else to see it right even though like we have to on our side as software developers we have to make the conscious choice like okay everyone else needs to see this at the same time but like your brain's already like this is the rules of the universe everyone can see what i'm seeing because it's it's physically there in space but then maybe what we can maybe a, a rule we can break is no matter who you are no matter where you're facing that element will be facing you in your experience. So it's not actually a shared, it's not a shared element across the whole, the whole scene. It really is sort of breaking a rule so that everyone gets the best experience, but it sort of tricks the brain into thinking it's a shared environment. So there's like, there's a lot that you can sort of make magical, but it has to adhere to some rules that your brain just assumes it has, because, because you feel like you're standing in a, in a physical location, you have to adhere to some of that. But yeah. uh, the most the most pleasing thing to do is to break the laws of gravity. Uh, our brains love that. Yeah. <laughs> so flying around and uh, not plummeting is always is always enjoyable. I get to be something I'm not. Yeah. 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 I, I think that the that kind of the the rules that you were just describing, where you've got some constraints that are global and some that are relative to the the experience the person experiencing it is a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that before. So like what, what kinds of examples are you guys thinking about for that? So, I mean, this is a, this is a sort of a trick that you'll probably notice now, but pretty much everything in prospect when you're walking through in a multi-user session, like what you're seeing other people doing, they're seeing something slightly different, right? Like even if you look at their like teleportation little cursors Uh that, that each person has, if you actually look at how they look compared to yours, like, you're seeing a different representation of it than what they see from their headset, right? And so, like, we're creating an illusion that everyone's in a shared UI when, in fact, everyone has a personal relative UI to their to their character. And that's just for usability. Video games do that all the time, right? And it's um, what's really important is the geometry is absolutely shared, yeah. <laughs> a source of truth across everyone. You can't you can't be looking at a different building. Um, and we're, Right. And like if a user hides a wall, you need everyone to immediately see that same thing be hidden. 
Right. Um, but from a from a usability user interaction standpoint, we're doing a lot of tricks there. Pretty much, like literally, pretty much everything. Where did that come from for you guys? Or when did when did you guys decide that that was the direction you were going to go? Is that does that come from like a, a gaming side of things? Does that come from a visualization? I remember like back when I used to do visualization too. Like there's certain things that you need to exaggerate because you want a certain scale to fe- you want it to feel like something. I mean, that's there. There is no such thing really as truth in rendering anymore, right? It's it's like you make it look how you want to make it look because which has total downsides too, right? But but for the most part, we were trying to convey something or communicate something, and therefore that that's why you decided to do something like that. It sounds like you're doing the same thing. Yeah, and 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 because especially back in like 2014, 2015, we were sort of the first doing it in this way. Like it all just had to be built and tested and. You know, what's so crazy about VR that I, I love it, but it's it's also it makes it harder as a medium is there's so many things that look good on screen in a spec. You know, we'll be going through like an Envision mock up and then we build it in VR and it just you put on the headset and two seconds in you're like, this isn't you can't do this. Right. Oh, it just doesn't work. Wow. Yeah. And like um, what's a recent example? We were looking at how um, we were looking at if a user created object needed to glow through walls or not, right? If you should be able to see something sort of presenting itself through a wall. Mm-hmm. And what we found very quickly is by letting it, it looked great in the mockups, but by letting it render sort of on top of all the other geometry, it completely broke your your spatial mm-hmm. uh, understanding of the scene, right? And of course, of course, when you try it in VR, you can't have elements just render on top of, on top of geometry that's closer to you and uh, totally breaks the stereo effect. So like there's stuff like that that just like, you have to try it in VR and then iterate on it. And then you ultimately end in a place where if you do it right, it's completely invisible and no one notices. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that, that's the fun part, honestly. Like if you do it right, then it feels really easy and simple. Let's pause for a moment right here and talk about our episode sponsor, Layer App, the must-have app for Revit users. Are you tired of digging for project photos, files, and field data days, if not months after it's captured? That's the power of Layer. Layer takes all your project-related data, photos, and files and makes them accessible with the click of a button right in Revit. Find out more and start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash troxel. That's L-A-Y-E-R dot team slash T-R-X-L. By the way, if you want to listen to episode 280 of my friend Mark LePage's Entree Architect podcast, you can hear Mark's interview with Zach Soflin, the architect turned software developer who created Layer App. Get your free trial at layer.team slash TRXL. And now let's jump right back into the conversation with Shane Scranton. One, one of the things that I've, I've always talked about with VR is it kind of forces a truth to the model right like you're with a rendering kind of getting back to that where we would exaggerate things to tell a certain story or communicate something like maybe you had to exaggerate curb height or stairs or you know something just to make sure that it didn't it didn't look wrong you didn't want to detract from what you were actually trying to communicate and maybe you even wanted to try to enforce it well with vr and the ability for people to look wherever they want that's why i i kind of go down this the story about truth right like it it, it enforces the architect the designer to really expose what that space is really like and and so before we would model to a view and now you have to model the whole thing potentially or you could just say well we're not done over there yet like don't worry about that but but it does start to kind of open up this question this line of questioning from a client 
potentially, or another person in the firm who thinks you're farther along than you actually are, or et cetera, et cetera. But but I'm wondering, like from from your standpoint, have you seen have you seen that as well? I mean, is that something that that is kind of universal across this stuff? Is it? It's like because I think on one level, like prospect has always had this it's not photoreal it's it's this level of fidelity that is totally acceptable though right and and because of the spatial quality and that one-to-one like we're totally willing to allow it to not be perfect so that we can have this amazing experience and and at some level you even forget about that right so but it also forces the geometry to be real like because it is one-to-one you're not exaggerating stuff because you you don't need to go through that extra effort anymore because the communication is very authentic. Completely. I think it's, I think it's by far the biggest strength of VR, but it is also, uh, you have to have a good relationship with your clients, right? Like it, if there's, um, if there's, uh, a, you know, a client who's really anchored on polish, like VR is going to be hard. VR, VR in our tool is going to be hard for them, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. It's it's going to there, but they'll also likely at that point be able to approve a budget for you know a more custom Unity build or Unreal Engine build where you know you get your Viz team to go in and put a lot of spit and polish on it. But what's so I think what's so interesting about that is like the more you do that, uh, the more you risk breaking from the truth of the building, the truth of the geometry, right? Because like I come from the Viz world too, like you dress it up, like you make you make the image look good, and you know if a wall's a little bit in the wrong place, like depending on the contract you just photoshop it over a little bit right, right. um and so like i think it's i think it's vr's biggest strength especially in coordination right like if you so there's the visualization and client engagement side but when you get into looking at how everything fits together especially as you get into um you know cds and yeah. and beyond and you right. start working with a larger team um not putting uh visual sort of sheen on it helps a lot with coordination because you can go in and sort of see where the issues are quickly and it's just faster to resolve and people are thinking less about like is that the right is that the right shininess of the metal and more like why is this duct running through the structural member are there any kinds of like unrealistic expectations that vr creates that kind of the other side of this this story that we're talking about right now that you've seen yeah i think the biggest thing there is really something about VR being making it feel like you're there makes it feel like uh, every, every every additional feature and every additional request from a client is easy to do, right? Yeah. Like if you're looking at a door, it's like, why can't I just open that? Like I'm in VR. I'm like, I can grab the door handle. Like, why doesn't it open? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, like you could explain like, well, that requires like a custom rig and you need like, you know, it's not in the model and we don't know the door swing. And like, but like people, because they're looking at something that they, that their brain sees as physical, there's a lot of physical things that they expect to just happen. Um, like, oh, it's sunny out. Can we make it rain? I want to see how, like, the raindrops fall off the roof. And, you know, we laugh as software developers. And, like, that's, you, they're not going to do that. Right. Uh, but, like, well, but I'm here. I can just, like, just make that happen. And I, I think that's, but that goes back to the magic of, you know, you really do, especially people who are uh, less technical in the real-time game engine space, they, they are so immersed in it that they just expect that this is sort of becoming a reality they can engage with in ways they would expect. Yeah. Sorry, you didn't pay for that, right? Like, I also I, there's a fun there's like a, an analogy that I use with with that kind of magical thinking, which is uh, like 3D printers are magic, right? The you you put a file into this thing and outspits this thing, and yeah, it takes like 24 hours for that to happen. But there's so many people who see that, and they are blown away that it quote unquote takes so long, right? 
And it's like, are you kidding me? That thing just spit out a piece of magic. And and you're already finding something to complain about with that when it would have taken a human longer to do that same exact thing. But now because of machines doing it, there is kind of this magical thinking mentality, which is like, well, well, now that I've seen that, I expect this. And it's not realistic. And I, and that's why I was kind of wondering if there's analogs to that in VR. And it sound, and I, I also wonder like how those may translate into the real world with construction, right? Because you go into this thing, you see it, and we, we draw things perfectly. The tolerances are incredible. You know, I, I'm generalizing there, right? But we're not we're not de- we're not designing airplanes. But but it's like when you go into the real world and you start analyzing a real space as you could in VR, it's like, wow, this wall really isn't straight. I expected better, right? Like I could just see that kind of thing happening now that we've experienced it w- at one to one in kind of ideal sin- situations with lighting and and whatever those things are and ambiance and the things that you can design in. How does that translate to the real world? I think you're right, but I think it's, I mean, compare it to what, what the option was before, right? Like, I think it's, it causes fewer of those surprises than if you're just looking at renderings. Um, yeah. Like, I think, you you know, we're coming from a place where, especially if you're talking about like a client going on to site saying, oh, this walls, you know, I thought this was, I thought this was a more light filled space. Like uh, prior, you know, before VR, you, you know, the client might not even have an image in their mind's eye and, right. and that can create much bigger challenges when they walk onto site. Um, So like, yeah, I think that's, you know, it's still not, it's still not reality, but it's, it's, it's creating a deeper understanding of the space, which I think in general is a net positive um, unless you have some really big issues. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I mean, the other piece of this, which is where I think a lot of this is going is um, I'm really excited about where sort of scanning tech is going and where sort of this concept of the digital, digital twin is going, especially as we move from like currently 3d and VR and BIM is sort of all used in the context of planning and pre-construction. We are we are approaching a world where suddenly these digital assets are both used for uh, constructing the building as well as well as operating it and maintaining yeah. it. A living um, document. Yeah. Yeah, and and when that when the precision there becomes uh, more accurate at a lower price point, suddenly VR has this whole new life to it, and AR. I, I talk about VR, but we also see it sort of on a spectrum of AR. Suddenly, sort of this medium to engage in uh, uh, a true-to-scale space, if you're looking at a true digital twin, there's a lot more opportunity there around training, around like, let's say you're going to have a maintenance team go out and fix something, like have them do it in VR first. You'll save a ton of time, and they, they, they can figure out how to ma- navigate the building from their homes before they go on site. Um, there's a lot coming in that regard, sort of to your question around, you know, the the, the realism of the digital model as compared to to the job site. Yeah, that's getting closer together over time, and it's going to unlock a lot for us on the three to five year time horizon. I totally agree. Yeah. So let's let's shift the conversation to kind of where things are headed, right? So what are you most excited about? Like, there's there's obviously hardware, there's software. There's the merging and the the expanded kind of lifeline lifetime uh, of what a model has the potential to be. It, like we just said, like it could become this living document that that evolves. Um, obviously, there's there's crazy limitations around access to software and updates, and you know, user not like do, do people even know how to open this up and get in there and do things? But there's so many of of like constraints as well. But like, what are you excited about that you're seeing you? You talked a little bit about that earlier with the the new Oculus Quest Two. Um, maybe we start there. Yeah. So um, short term, I'm really excited about 
about what's happening. And I mean, we've been, I've been devoting many hours a week to VR for six and a half years. And yeah. it finally feels like with the quest and with these, these headsets that are truly personal devices, um, s- suddenly there, it's not just the early adopters buying these headsets, and it's not just the, the early adopters putting them on uh, with with frequency. And it's because they're lighter weight, they're more comfortable. Everyone's sitting in their homes, so there's like less social pressure to wear them. Right. And uh, we are we are truly seeing um, um, more people who aren't gamers and aren't you know doing VR in their free time. Uh, really meaningfully using using these standalone devices for work, yeah. and um, I think like Facebook's recognized that. If you saw their keynote, like they're they're working on what they're calling the Infinite Office, which I'm really excited about. Um, and they have their Oculus for Business platform, so like it's it's exciting to see the headset manufacturers also start realizing that they're really moving beyond this first wave of early adopters. And you know that's a big shift to move from an early early adopter market to a early majority market. That's huge for the ecosystem and for us growing as a business. So I'm excited about that in the short term and I'm excited about, you know, we're sort of just moving beyond uh, VR being a burden and it's just much lighter weight. Longer term, I, I think we're, we're, we've, every VR founder since the dawn of time has talked about how it's ultimately AR as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's coming more into focus now. Uh, Project Aria from Facebook is really exciting. Apple is rumored to be working on AR devices. There's a lot of really interesting streamlined, small sunglass form factor devices that look like they're on the horizon. And, um, you know, for, for us, that's the other side of the, the equation, right, is uh, what a way to connect someone on site to the digital model, right? If, if you can see the digital model on site in a similar true to scale way, suddenly between VR and AR, you have this really amazing ecosystem of immersive tech that connects you immediately to what is planned as you're working on it. And I think that that's just this industry. Most other industries have something like that, right? But what we do in buildings is hard and complex and it's different every time. And if we can better connect that to what is digitally planned, it just unlocks so much productivity. So I'm really excited about where AR is going. Uh, and it feels like it's it's approaching a point of viability with some of the rumored headsets coming up. Awesome. I, I'm wondering also from like an experiential standpoint, I, I was, I think one of the last times I was in Vegas, probably saw you there was I went to the void at, in the Venetian and in the shops there. And that was my first experience. I, there's one down here by me down in downtown Disney as well. I haven't, I did take my kids to that one. I didn't go through because I didn't want to plunk down the change to do it. But but it was like a birthday, and, and I had the, and it was like four you, four people can go do the Star Wars experience, right? So it was our four kids. Um, and then when I was in Vegas with with like my friend Chris, who you know, and we we went in and did I can't remember what it was, but it was it was like some amazing, fully immersive, experiential. You know, you're walking through this self guided, untethered. You've got the computer on your back. A backpack style you've got the haptic feedback in the chest plates and you're holding on to something and and they've mapped some real world elements to some virtual world elements so you know you push buttons on things and you feel like you're going up and down elevators and there's so many other things i'm sure you've seen a ton of like gimmicky stuff as well right like like we see these these moving floors that you can get on and move in any direction but i think you know when they start adding the extra layers of experience to it with heat 
and with wind and with smell and with sound and all of these kind of other things that fill in the gaps.、Um, it's absolutely incredible. Like you cannot ignore how you feel when you walk out of that kind of experience. Like what, what's, what's the experiential side of things that you're seeing that you're kind of really keen on or have seen fail or, you know, like take us down that path? Yeah, your brain is very willing, right, to, to accept. A, a reality if you get some of those those inputs.、Um, I think, I mean, a lot of what you just described of like, you know, you're wearing the backpack, you've got a bunch of stuff rigged up, but as a result, you can sort of walk freely around, interact with like a digital button on a physical wall.、Yeah. I think what I'm so excited about is we're not too far away from that being a pair of sunglasses and hand tracking, right? Yeah, Where、incredible. you literally put on your shades. And then it knows your, like Oculus already has amazing tech around hand tracking. It's worth trying on your Quest.、Um, it's just, it picks up your hands right away. It, they're, they're fully rigged.、Uh, you can reach out and it's, it's fully tracked. And so it's not too far away now to picture that being a pair of sunglasses. You have your hands in that digital environment plus the physical environment. And you have a deep enough understanding of the, of the world around you to really start making it this layered interaction between digital and physical. Uh, smell, I'm not, I, I hope it's solved. It's not something like I've tried a lot of this, the, like, the smell add ons to uh -huh, VR. Uh -huh.、Um, you know, respectfully, I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> uh, it's just it's too much to have stuff sprayed into your face.、Um, but uh, I think there's like, I think just through connecting your, your, your physical body and your, your anatomy to what you're seeing in the digital world,、yeah. uh, plus. Plus, your sight plus sound, for me at least, it, it, bridges, it, it works for me to sort of bridge me into full immersion, right? I don't need smell. I don't need temperature changes.、Um, I, I, between between you know, physical、uh, location, sound, and sight,、um, if, that's, if, that's, if that can all be achieved with sunglasses, which I think it can,、uh, we're, we're really entering sort of the, the next era of computing devices. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I, I kind of start to now think about. The need for、um, elaborate physical space or the lack of.、Um, because architects are, are good at designing that stuff. And、um, that's where their value lies, right? Is in solving the problems that lead to that design. But then they don't, they don't deliver that、uh, for the most part.、Um, and so I'm wondering like, are you seeing companies or individuals kind of pop up who are architects of virtual space and worlds and? See that as kind of like viable business moving forward, potentially? Yes. I mean, we, we've worked with and we know a handful of former architects who are now doing you know, environmental design at a, at a headset company, right? Like, I mean, it's, yeah, there, there's a lot of amazing tools coming out as well for unlocking the spatial design process in a digital environment. And、um, I think that's really exciting for the practice. I mean, it, there's, it's this. <laughs> Depending on how much longer we're, it's recommended that we, we socially distance, it might, be a, it might be a booming business, right? Yeah, building yeah. virtual worlds to,、yeah. to help you, know, help you、um, really feel like you're not just in, in one space. So, like,、uh, short answer, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a, a huge business there. Not surprisingly, it's already existed for many years in the, in the arena of game design. I mean,、right. game studios have hired architects for a long time to design the levels and design the spaces, and suddenly, That game design is applicable to almost everyone because、uh, of immersive technology and, and now the applications that are emerging from that. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good point. I think 
one of the things that I've, you know, there's an old adage, it doesn't count if it doesn't get built. <laughs> and I mean, that's totally in regards to the physical world, right? And, and architectural projects. So it's like competitions. I mean, that's basically what they're commenting on, right? It's kind of this backhanded, or, you know, maybe it's straight up, but it's just like, yeah, that doesn't count. That's paper architecture or whatever. Now I kind of wonder um, if, if, like you said, the, the brain, the body gets so much out of these kind of rich virtual experiences, if that adage holds up, right? Because I definitely think it's being called into question because people are getting as much or more out of that than they might from, and, and obviously it's, it, there's a safety factor. Like they feel very safe. They get to do it in the privacy of their own home. There's not the kind of those social pressures. There's so many other things kind of playing into this kind of acceptance of the virtual as being great. And they're getting this, the dopamine hit because the environment's perfect, right? It's exactly what they want to see. I wonder like, I wonder what this is going to do, like culturally. It's just really interesting to watch. It is, and I think like I think a I think a short term reality, and really, I mean, I mean this in the next few years. I think you will see a generation of of uh, teenagers, but maybe even a few workers who opt to not have monitors at their desk. Like I think we're we're actually based on the ergonomics of these headsets. Like you don't need a. This is a, the shortest term example I can give. Like you don't need a computer monitor pretty soon. Yeah. Um, you got you got the display on your face and you can act you can have as big of a monitor you can have 30 monitors and i think like you know once the ergonomics of wearing a device like that for 8 hours is solved and it's getting a lot better um, you know that's one of the first things to go but to your point like you can you can extrapolate that out to like what does what what does our office space look like 10 years from now what does home uh, entertainment space look like 10 years from now and can we essentially use these sort of infinite possibilities of the digital realm to allow for more design ideas to be realized, but not in a physical way. And uh, I obviously believe that that is true. Yeah, really interesting. Well, I mean, I I would love to go on and on about this, but I want to also be very respectful of your time. This has been a really fun conversation. Uh, One thing that I do with all my guests is I ask them a a couple of questions. And so I'm going to hit you with them now. Um, and I know that you're going to have you're going to have something interesting here because, like, again, like just to take it back to where we started, you are insanely positive. I, you're you're such a joy to talk to. Like, you're always grinning and smiling and excited. And there's so much possibility in in talking to you. So I appreciate that about you. What do you do uh, for yourself to help keep that up to perform better? Like, what what do you what can you share with us that that kind of helps you? continue and maintain that i i appreciate it thank you um before when we were all in person in the office i think the thing that um is was is and was most motivating is um the uh this is gonna sound sort of uh silly but you know you are what's so exciting about about frontier tech development is you know you are you are so much greater than some of your parts and there's so much uh it really does feel like we're unlocking a new, um, a whole new, not even workflow, but a whole new fundamental way of getting work done for an industry I deeply admire and, and love. And so there's just, it. there's so much energy to be gained from uh, getting validation of that in person. And when we're, when we're showing people those experiences and we hear that back from, from the industry, that's really exciting. Um, and, and then to be able to, uh, deliver on conceptual ideas that people can picture about features or about the technology to be able to actually ship that and then see that reaction is just a positive feedback loop, right? You just, yeah. you just can't get enough of that. Right. Um, 
and th that's the work answer. I'd say the personal answer is um, I've found I, I, I think I can give a lot of credit to sort of my upbringing for this. But like, so I grew up, I grew up in the middle of the woods. I grew up without internet or cell service. I didn't get a cell phone until I went to college. I always loved technology, but I was, I was actually like very disconnected growing up. Yeah. And um, I do think one thing I, I'm pretty good at, my team would probably disagree, is uh, I'm good at taking moments throughout the day to truly disconnect. Um, you know, right now that's through having a garden and that's through just having some nature. Um, you know, in New York, that was oftentimes just through uh, switching to a completely uh, uh, non-work related task on the subways and when I'm in my apartment. I mean, uh, some people will laugh, but I've actually found that like, if it's really truly crazy throughout the day, like even an hour or two of gaming at night or just something that takes you out of your current your current place mentally yeah, right. is just the best way to recharge. And so always trying to find a way to truly fundamentally disconnect every day. It's especially hard um, in startup life and in, in CEO life, but it's it's so important to sort of come at the challenges fresh the next day. Is that something that you schedule or is it just something that happens when you think of it or how does that work for you? Uh, it's something I schedule on the good months and it's something that uh, I sort of get forced upon me in the bad months, right? I think like I'm both. also very fortunate to have a very supportive wife and supportive family and I think there's a, there's a few other people advocating for it too yeah. when it needs to happen. <laughs> it affects them, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, that's it's interesting. I, I think, you know, I hear that a lot and, and for me, it's like getting out on a bike, you know, and actually, like you said, it's it's a completely different place for your mind to occupy which is a really important aspect of that and so so much of so much of what everyone is dealing with right now is how do you have clarity in all of this and i would say that you know that is getting harder every week with the world and um i think it's the the only way to do that is to is to find a way to like fully fully wipe the mind. Yeah. I, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who have found that through meditation. Um, yeah. I cannot do that. I'm not wired that way. Um, but there are, you know, any way to sort of get you to reset and look at, look at challenges sort of without external inputs. Um, I think is so important and we're, we're, we're all faced with so much right now. It's, it's increasingly important. Yeah. I, I, I that's, that's a great answer. So I appreciate that. So as far as who's influencing Shane, like who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Is there any recommendations that you would make in that realm? And it doesn't have to, again, kind of be related to work. It could be, could be anything. Yeah. My, um, uh, there's, there's always nonfiction recommendations and, uh, in the theme of disconnecting, I won't, I won't make any comments there, you know, read all the startup books and read all the architecture books and, you know, they're all great. Um, but on the fiction side, I'm having, uh, just, I just, I've always loved, uh, Haruki Murakami. And I think it's, it's also speaking of how my brain's wired. Like I, I find so many connections to his idea of, of sort of fantastical worlds as corollaries to a lot of the work we do in, in immersive tech. But, um, I just love his writing and, uh, highly recommend Murakami's books. That's always, that's always a go-to for me. Awesome. Well, I, I'm going to, do you have any specific recommendations there that I could link to in the show? I think right now my favorite is um, Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World or uh, Wind Up Bird Chronicles. Those are both fantastic. Awesome. I'll add those to the show notes. Okay, last question. Where can people find out more about you, follow along with what you guys are doing? What was the best place online or any other way? IrisVR.com for IrisVR related things. And then uh, my email, uh, Shane at IrisVR.com for anything else. 
Awesome. And uh, I'll put links in there for your LinkedIn if people want to follow along with their um, what you guys are doing over there. But um, thank you so much for taking the time and being so generous today with that and all of these amazing ideas and kind of you know the angle that you approach things at. I think is always really fun to it's it's a it what you do is kind of a a separate avenue from what I do, and so like this is a bit of an escape for me. So I appreciate you you taking the time to do that today. Well, thank you. I I appreciate the parallel tracks and it's always a pleasure, Evan. So thank you so much. Once again, a big thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Layer App, the flexible database for architects that makes it easy to view photos, files, and project data right in Revit. Remember, start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash trxl. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.